and welcome to Students for a Better Future Radio. Hello, this is Mark Falzon with co-host Ruben Torres. We have a special guest this evening, Rebecca Gordon. We are Students for a Better Future, led by Her Highness Doreen Finkel. So, Rebecca, welcome aboard, and thank you for taking the time to be with us this evening. Hello? Hello, Rebecca? <laughs> she was just there, Ruben. Yeah, yeah, she was. We might have to call her back. Maybe she, uh, sometimes it's very windy in San Francisco. Hello, Rebecca, are you there? Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear yes. you now. Welcome aboard. Yes. Thank you for All joining right. our show this evening. I'm delighted to be here. Well, so, tell me about Students for a Better Future. What is that? Well, we try and counter the Marxist indoctrination occurring on college campuses, predominantly through New Jersey. That's our goal. Got it. Okay. That's what we do. All right. We don't like Marxists. Oh, okay. Well, you got a Marxist with you, but a very mild Marxist, so it'll be all right. <laughs> okay, no, don't tell me that. Rebecca, <laughs> Rebecca. I, I mean, uh, are 100 million bodies the result of Marxist terrorism aren't enough to convince you otherwise, ma'am? Well, I would certainly say that I uh, think that the actions of Stalin and Stalinist Russia um, are, you know, among the greatest of the crimes of the 20th century. So yeah, and Mao, and Mao too. You know, I've always looked at these resilient Chinese people. First, they incur the wrath of the Japanese, and the Japanese, as you know, were were barbaric. And all throughout Eastern and Central China, uh, then after they finally rid them of the Japanese, they rid themselves of them, then they have to suffer under Mao, and yet look at where they are today, uh, 60 years later, a little over 60 years later, they've managed to pick themselves up from the, the horrors that occurred, I mean, I saw eight millimeter films of the rape of Nanking. Mm, oh and God! It, it yeah. was yeah. horrifying, horrifying. But uh, anyway, Martin, anyway. Uh, I let's, see let's you have on. such let's... an exciting bio. I'm going to shut up and you tell us about your travels, Rebecca. Marxist notwithstanding. <laughs> <laughs> so you were Mark. Mark, 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 Mark tends to be. Uh, the joker of the two, of us two, you know, he tends to be the comical one. Got it. But, okay. Uh, but let, let me focus on uh, the reason we invited you on on the program. Uh, the title of your book is American Nuremberg. Why did you mm-hmm. choose that title? That's a really good question. So mm-hmm. to be perfectly honest, I didn't choose the title. The publisher came to me and said, this is a book that I think needs to be written And I heard you on the radio, and I want you to write the book. And I said, okay, but I don't like the title. But the more research I did, the more I came to actually appreciate the title, and here's why. At the end of World War II, as the war was winding down and it was obvious that the Allies were going to win, the four great, what were called the great powers, right, Great Britain, France, the Soviet Union, and the United States, had this problem, which was, what are we going to do with the leaders of the Nazi government that are responsible for unleashing the horror that has you know, taken something like 85 million lives when you include the war in, in Asia as well as in Europe? 85 million people, that's a lot of lives. What are we going to do to hold these people responsible? And the problem they had was that there was no established international forum where people could be brought to trial. And so they had to figure out what can we do to create as legitimate a process as possible, given the reality, which is that people are going to look at this and they're going to say this was Victor's justice because the people who won the war got to hold the trials. 
And so they right. had to really work carefully to figure out what would be a fair process. Because there were people who said, look, let's not bother with trials. Let's just line them up against the wall and shoot them. And mm-hmm. there were other people who said, you know, if we do that, then history is always going to ask, was that right? Did those people get justice? And so what the reason that this book is called American Nuremberg is that I believe that nothing like the scale of what happened in World War II, but that there have been crimes committed in the context of what was is the so-called war on terror that have been committed by officials at the highest level of the government of my country, and nobody has yet been held responsible for them. And so I'm trying to figure out if those people were brought to trial, what were the actual laws that were broken or might have been broken, and in what kind of context could they be tried? Yeah, but are, so that's are, where the title are comes they, from. Are, are there any Nuremberg tri- tribunals still relevant today? Well, I think they are because I think what happened at Nuremberg, even though it was imperfect, and there's no question that it was not perfect, but it was a human attempt and you know we know human beings are not perfect i think what it established was for the very first time the idea that the international community has a right to hold people responsible and governments responsible when they cause terrible crimes against humanity when they destroy as they did six million of the people of my family and along with lots of other people, you know, of the people who died in that war, the vast majority of them were civilians, not soldiers. And so I think that it's important and there are direct descendants. So one direct descendant is the trial. So there's the trial for the former Yugoslavia and the tribunal that that's still ongoing for that. Another one is the tribunals that were held after the genocide in Rwanda. And then there is the International Criminal Court, which unfortunately the United States is not part of. Right, but that's that's the one in in, in The Hague. Um, Right. But but do you consider the uh, International Court to be a failure in today's modern society? I mean, it it hasn't really – I mean, after Milosevic in, in, in Yugoslavia, I haven't really heard the um, the international courts really applying the the, the law to uh, public officials or political uh, leaders around the well, world. Well, actually, they have. But the reason you haven't heard about it probably is because most of the people who have been tried at the International Criminal Court have been leaders of African countries, and this is one of the criticisms that many people make of the International Criminal Court, the ICC, is that, oh, well, that's just people from Africa, and you never pay attention to any of the crimes that are committed by uh, officials from more developed nations. But yeah, there, there are trials going on right now at the ICC of people responsible for war crimes in Africa, for uh, murders, for rapes, for using rape as a weapon of war. These things are happening, but the problem that I think the world faces is the United States is the most powerful country in the world. We have by far the biggest military. We have the biggest nuclear arsenal. We have military bases on every continent all over the world, and yet the world has not yet been able to hold the United States responsible when it breaks its own the treaties that it signed when it breaks international law and this is a problem and i think it's a problem that those of us who have the privilege of being citizens of this country that we have to take it on because you know this is meant to be a democratic society and so as citizens who benefit from living in this country we also have a responsibility to hold our rulers responsible for keeping the treaties that we sign, for obeying international law, for not torturing people, for not starting wars that when we haven't been attacked, all of those things that we have said we would do, and then we turn around and violate those treaties. And, and so, I, and, and, yeah. and I could understand, and I, and I could understand what, uh, you know, and, and, and agree to a, to a certain extent, but then at the same mm-hmm. time, I, I don't see how Fidel Castro has been, really, you know, 
uh, treating his his own people and all those dissidents that are, are in prison, those political prisoners, Kim Jong Il in North Korea, the way he treats, and why not then? They're not getting the attention that they should. So, so I, mean, I have, I, yeah. I, I, no, I Kim Jong Il. Okay. Yeah. I have no control over what goes on in North Korea. I have no control over what goes on in Cuba. I've actually visited Cuba, um, but I do have some control and some responsibility for my own government because I live in a democratic society. In you know, I don't pretend to know very much except what I read in the mainstream media about North Korea. It sounds certainly like a hellhole. What I do know about Cuba is, yes, they are very hard on political dissidents. But at the same time, what I also know about Cuba, because I've been there and I've been to Central America and lived there, is that there is a very different, big difference in the standard of living of the people of Cuba and the people of Central America, and there's much more equality in terms of income. Is it democratic? Absolutely not. I mean, yes, in the sense that there are some structures that are that could be converted into democratic structures. They aren't really democratic yes, yet, but do people have three square meals a day, work that pays a decent amount, a place to live, that kind of thing? That is very different from what you see in Central America, where many people live in just abject poverty. So, you know, but again, I'm not a Cuban citizen. I'm an American citizen. So my right. responsibility is for my country. But, if, but you know what? I want to answer Ruben's question. I wanted to answer Ruben's yeah. question about what the, the treaties. And the most recent treaty that I see as breaking is the one where the Ukrainians foolishly gave up all their nuclear weapons in exchange for a security defense treaty with the United States. And then when Putin uh, seized the Crimea and has been causing trouble in uh, eastern Ukraine, the United States has done nothing. Now, I'm ambivalent with that uh, only because uh, at the moment we have old jackass as our commander-in-chief. And at this point in time, I don't even want to go to war with Liechtenstein while we have uh, this bozo in the White House. But that treaty, we, we did violate the terms of that treaty, clearly. They gave up their mm -hmm. nuclear weapons while Clinton was, was president. We said we'd defend them. We haven't. We haven't even sent them uh, any, any weapons. And at this juncture, like I said, I don't even know if I want to antagonize Putin while, because we have... Putin on one side, and we have Obama. Oh, my God, what a mismatch. Uh, I, we certainly don't want to be getting into any altercations with the Russians at this juncture. I, I would even take whoever the next president is. We still don't want to. Uh, we're going to need a year or two to refurnish our armed forces because, ma'am, you were talking about us having the biggest and largest armed forces in the world. Uh, I don't believe that's the case anymore. Nuclear arsenal, yes. Conventional forces, no more. Our uh, standing armies way down. Our navy is way down. Uh, the air force, not only are the numbers down, but we have malfunctioning aircraft. But we, well, we are in a dangerous true. situation. Go ahead. Uh, I'm, I'm done. All right. So a couple of things. Um, let me ask you, how old are you? 62. Okay. So, did you serve in any of the wars of um of the 20th no, century? No, ma'am. I did turned you? 18 in 1972 when the draft was abolished okay. and right. Vietnam so was yeah. winding down. Right. Right. Okay. So, here's the thing. Lived in a war zone and have seen sort of firsthand, not sort of, have seen firsthand the effects that war has on not just the people who are fighting it with weapons, but the people who happen to be living in the place where war is going yeah, unfortunately, on. Unfortunately, yes. And, and um, the reality is that in modern wars, the people who suffer the most are not the people – I mean, yes, the people who fight 
and are injured or who die absolutely suffer. But but the people who have no defense and the people who really suffer are the civilians who have no control over what's happening in the place where they Agreed. live. Agreed. And so, so, you know, my, when I think about treaties that we have broken, I would say the one that, yeah, the one with Ukraine is problematic. But what yeah, I it's the most recent. That, that was the only reason I focused yeah. on that, Rebecca. But I would say that there's a treaty we signed in 1928, and you might think, oh, well, that was a long time ago, so it doesn't count. But in fact, you probably know that once the Senate ratifies a treaty under Article 6 of our Constitution, that makes that treaty part of the supreme law of the land. That's what it says. So we have to obey it. So we also sign the documents that created the United Nations in the United Nations Charter. And the Charter is very clear about when one nation is allowed to attack another nation, and it requires a resolution from the Security Council. And it requires also that it be an act of self-defense. And self-defense is defined very clearly, traditional international law. It's defined as being in the state of being uh, about to be imminently attacked and in which a, a preemptive strike is the absolute only way you can possibly prevent this imminent attack that's about to happen. When the United States went into Iraq, none of those things were true. We did not have a UN resolution. In fact, the United States got a resolution saying, you know, Saddam Hussein needs to um, cooperate with the people who are inspecting for weapons of mass destruction. And he was cooperating. And in fact, the, the head of the, of the organization that was, was investigating that said, yes, he's cooperating. The United States and Great Britain at the time of those discussions said, look, pass this resolution that says he has to cooperate. And we promise we will come back to you for another resolution if there's going to be an actual war, if we're going to attack. When it came time to get that resolution, the United States realized that France and Russia would both veto that resolution in the, in the Security Council. We were not under attack by Saddam Hussein. There was no way Saddam Hussein was about to attack the United States, and yet we went in anyway. And the problem with that is that we unleashed a war for which we were completely unprepared in terms of what we were going to do once we cut the head off of the government. We were completely unprepared to govern that country. And as a result, somewhere between, and it's really hard to get accurate figures, it's somewhere between 250,000 and a million people just in Iraq alone have died as a result of that war. And that doesn't even begin to touch the next place that's become destabilized, which is Syria, where we've got over half of the entire population of that country, 14 million out of 22 million people who have had to leave their homes. Five million of them have had to leave the country and will probably never be able to go back. We unleashed right. all of that with an unprovoked illegal attack. And that is a war crime. It's a crime against peace. And I think the Wait, people no, no, responsible who lied to Hold on, Rebecca. Hold on, Rebecca. Um, first of all, uh, I was not a fan of going into Iraq. I thought, what a mistake. If we were going to go to war anywhere over there, it should have been against those bastards in Iran. They've been living on borrowed time. However, the UN, all had an, the UN and the U.S. Congress both had their imprimatur legalizing the intervention in, in Iraq. Now, no, I didn't agree with it. You don't agree with it. Kofi Annan, who was the who was the Secretary General of the of the UN, said it was an illegal war. But did he oh, say okay. that after oh. the Security Council voted, or what? And also, may yes, I have to tell you, not many Americans, say. not many Americans have faith in any of these UN people. I mean, the UN has been usurped by Muslim groups of nations, by radical leftists. I mean, you have Saudi Arabia, who is the, the most barbaric kingdom, chairing human rights forums, for God's sakes. Okay. Well, uh, I agree that, that there's something a bit ironic about that. 
we're we're deviating away. I have a set of I have a set of questions that I have for Rebecca. Go for it. Go for yeah, it. but we do a give and take also, man. Go ahead, Ruben. <laughs> okay. I, I I like to prep myself for for my interviews. Uh, is there an international standard or an American standard, or are all countries supposed to abide by international standards? Oh, that is such a good question. That yeah, yes. this is a question I actually discuss with my students all the time. So mm-hmm. my answer to that is that. There is no international standard except the standard that is created when nations get together and sign treaties, and that's what sets the standard. Then there are also U.S. laws that govern what we are allowed to do, for example, to people that we are holding who we are detaining in our power. So there are both international laws that exist because we've signed the treaties that created them, and then there right. are also American standards that have to do with specific laws that our Congress has passed. And we are, and as I say, once we sign a treaty, that's not only an international standard, that becomes an American law once the Senate ratifies it. So, yeah, there are both. Right, but, but in, in the cases that you, you were making about going, going into Iraq and in the, in the number mm-hmm. of people who, who, were, who were killed and then the situation in, in Syria – Situation in the Middle East through the Arab Spring that uh, uh, President Obama um, basically uh, and, and, and the Democratic uh, um, Congress basically pushed along. That also created a whole set of millions and millions of people who were basically separated and killed by decisions that these. Where are you talking about? What, what I'm talking about with the, is that, with the Arab that, Spring. Where are you talking about? The Arab Spring was the the, the uh, where, no, where which countries when it started in in in, um, in Tunisia. In Tunisia? And then when Tunisia went so people Tunisia. were not killed in Tunisia. Well, in no, fact, no, Tunisia the is the only success story of the whole uh, no, Arab no, no, Spring. No, no, no. I'm saying that the Arab Spring was the spring for situation that's happening in, in Syria because we had. Well, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know. You, you know, I have to tell you, folks. I don't know if what if the civil war in Syria was related to those things, and and, I, and I'll tell you, soon as the civil war started, my perspective was Syria is a lose lose for the United States because either Assad maintains power and Iran maintains hegemony uh, over Syria, or these jihadists savages would have won and taken over because certainly not the moderates were going to take, uh, take the seat of the government. So Syria was a lose-lose from the get-go. And if and you look at it, it chronologically, was... I, I don't know if what happened in Iraq had had an influence in Syria that events were, uh, were, were parallel and were occurring parallel with what's been going on in Syria. Well, we went into Iraq in 2003, and mm-hmm. the, the Syrian civil war really didn't begin until about 2012. So we're definitely talking about a different time period. However, what's really interesting is that when Paul Wolfowitz and Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld came into the Bush White House, they actually came in with a plan. And this was a plan that had been presented to Clinton by an organization they were all part of called the Project for a New American Century. And mm-hmm. the, plan was, the plan was basically we're going to create a new world order, in effect, in the Middle East. We're going to remake the Middle East in an image that we think is going to be more malleable and more consistent with U.S. geopolitical interests. Step one, get rid of Saddam Hussein. Step two, destabilize Syria and replace the current Ba'athist government there with a government of our choosing. Step three, reinforce the power of Saudi Arabia and Israel in the Middle East as our bulwarks and our protection for what was then the most important thing, which was the oil. So we, the, the Bush administration came into the White House with this plan and they were already discussing it before September 11th happened. And that was why, after September 11th, it was so important to them to be able to prove 
something that right. wasn't true, which was that Saddam Hussein was responsible for September 11th. And that's why they started torturing people, because they wanted people to say that. They wanted people like Abu Zubaydah to give testimony that wasn't true, that Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda were hand in hand. And they weren't, because but, they were yeah. different people. And it's so interesting, because today, the question of who were actually flying those planes is sort of like this blank slate. So while my students still had um, people fighting in Iraq, so when I was teaching in the early 2000s, and we were fighting hard in Iraq, and I had students who had boyfriends there and girlfriends there and uh, people who had just come back from Iraq, and I asked them, who were the attackers on September 11th? They all said they were Iraqis. Then a few years later, when everybody was getting excited about Iran and Iran was the new enemy of the day, I asked my students, who were the attackers on September 11th? And they all said, oh, they were Iranians. The fact is we have forgotten who 17 out of those 19 people were. Mm -hmm. They were from our big Saudi ally, Saudi Arabia, with whom, oh, by yeah. the way, and we you know that's currently a hot fighting a war right now. in Yemen. That's a hot and, topic right now. You know, these uh, uh, isn't there? They were even considering legislation to release the 28 pages off the 9/11 report. Yes. And yes. Uh, our and president, who always seems, yeah, and and the you thing and I is, can agree on this. We want to see those pages. Yeah, because it was it was squashed on the bush. And Obama's trying to squash it now as well. And this goes to what I've been saying for years, that both political parties are just awash in Saudi oil money, and they're bought and paid for, and they're going to roll along with whatever objective and program the Saudi puppet masters tell them to do. And this is well, what's the going on right now. Well, the other thing to remember is the whole country is awash in that money, because one of our biggest industries, which is the aerospace and military hardware industry, Saudi Arabia is our biggest customer. So it's not right. only the government, but it's also our economy is really implicated in that relationship. And, you know, the question is, who are the customers going to be if we're not selling to Saudi? Saudi Arabia, according to the New York Times this morning, is the third highest spender on military hardware in the world, I assume, after the United States and Russia. So that's a, also a really serious problem for us if we want to get disentangled from Saudi Arabia. It's not just the oil. Well, it's also well, the military. Rebecca, Rebecca, I have a question for you that I think uh, I, I want to see. Uh, I'm very uh, anxiously waiting for your response. What do you make of Obama's drone strikes? He's killed many innocent people, even bombed a doctor's with our border hospital in Afghanistan. Are Obama's I, drone strikes actually war crimes? They are crimes. Literally, in the most literal technical sense, they're not war crimes because you can only have a war crime when there are actual armies engaged. But they are crimes against human rights, and they absolutely are, and I talk about that in the book. And, you know, I suspect that we that we have a different opinion about Obama as a president. But let me say that in the context of this, there's no question that those, that those drone strikes which have killed, as you say, you know, people in mm -hmm. wedding parties, people who are you know, celebrating Eid, which is the end of Ramadan, people right. who are just going about their ordinary lives, yeah, those things are absolutely against the law they are against international human rights law. They're against treaties we've signed. They are wrong, and the people who've done it should be held responsible. I would also say they're very bad for the actual individuals who are sitting in those containers out in the desert in Nevada who are pushing those buttons. And I don't know if you've read any of the interviews with people who worked in the military as drone pilots who have walked away from that and talked about the moment when they suddenly realized that the thing that they had been looking at as if it were a video game, that it was right. actually real human beings. And there's one guy who talks about how he suddenly realized he had probably killed something like 1,200 people, and he had watched them bleed out with the pixels on his screen. 
And so, so yeah, absolutely. Those drone strikes, which began under Bush and continue under Obama, absolutely, I count those as crimes. But I, I, I sense, I sense a, a, a little bias in the media between what they consider the Bush administration's war crimes and Obama. Well, they were greater. There's no question about it. I mean, under okay. the Bush administration, we had you know wholesale use of torture, not just by the CIA, but also by the DIA, by the by the the U.S. military in certain places. And, you know, not not your most of your rank and file soldiers who have a pretty good understanding of the Geneva Conventions and get trained on that pretty well. But nonetheless, we saw it also at Guantanamo and, of course, in Abu Ghraib. And we have signed treaties that say we won't do that. And it is illegal under international law. It's illegal under U.S. law. It's also ineffective in that it produces a whole bunch of junk and not information. But more than that, it's wrong. And we as a people, this is the thing that in some ways I feel like to the American people, one of the worst crimes, and it's not a legal crime, is that we have been turned into cowards. We have been convinced over the last 14, 15 years since September 11th that we are constantly in mortal danger. And that, given that, it does not matter what is done as long as it will protect us and keep us personally safe. And we have a word in the English language for people who say, do anything you have to do as long as I will be protected. We call people like that cowards. And I think yep. that we have been trained to be cowards because we've been trained to accept anything in the name of keeping well, ourselves safe. And my question is, what are we trying to protect? Is it our values? If so, we shouldn't be spending those values to protect them. But so I, anyway, I would say so that, anyway, I, would that, that, I, would I wanted to ask. Go ahead, Ruben. Uh, just quick, I, I would put the blame, the, the biggest blame on is the media. The media is the one that push is pushing this. Otherwise, well, you know, that's of course, Ruben. If Generalissimo Hussein is doing it, the media is going to love it, uh, regardless of what the man does. So that clearly explains that. But I wanted to ask, to ask our guest, um, you know, obviously I'm not a big fan of Obama. Uh, I, I do tell. give him a pass on, on – <laughs> yes, I wear it on my sleeve proudly. Um, I give him a pass on the drones because I'd like to ask you, Rebecca, how would you suggest we come back uh, – the jihadists that are okay. causing all this trouble and suffering. Uh, you That's know, I, a very I like good to hear question. that. That's a very good question. And the first thing I would say is with a very few exceptions, the people who are suffering from the jihadists are not people in this country. They are other Muslims who are living in the Arab world or in Afghanistan. That's who's suffering. And so um, the first thing I think we have to do is get a sense of proportion. We need to recognize that, yes, terrorism is a tactic that is used by many different political groups, but the number of terrorists in the world is relatively small. And the people who are suffering from them are the people who are having their marketplaces blown up on a daily basis. The people who are you know, frankly, experiencing drones falling on them from the sky. If you're killed by a jihadist or you're killed by an American drone, you're still dead either way. So my answer is we need to recognize that this Islamic jihadism is a result of a lot of different forces and that one of the things we need to do is address the forces that create that in the first place. We also here in this country have to treat these attacks when they happen as what they are. They are crimes. Insane people who shot up the uh, recreational center in San Bernardino, that, those were criminal acts. They were not acts of war. They may have been deluded and thought they were committing acts of war, but what they did was they committed murder, just like Dylan Roof committed murder when he shot up the church in South Carolina. 
Those things are criminal matters, and they need to be handled as police matters, not as military matters. And I think the same thing is true. Those two instances are apples and oranges, Rebecca. The the kooks in San Bernardino were following an ideology, a a global ideology, ideology. This this guy he in, in, in the ideology. South, he, he, he was a nut. He was following he was an ideology case. that we call – well, yeah, they both are nutcases, and they're well, both which following Which ideology beliefs. was he following? His belief is white – oh, it's very clear. If you read what he's written, it's white supremacy. It's the idea that white people are in a war – with African Americans, and that the only way we can defend, they can defend themselves, or we can defend ourselves, is by picking up the gun and shooting people. That now, is an where ideology. do you think he got that? Uh, how do you think he arrived at that conclusion? Well, it's interesting because, of course, it's not a new idea in the United States that white people are superior to black people. It's actually one of the founding ideas in. You know, it goes back to the Constitution. Oh, it wouldn't have to where, do with the rash of black-on-white violence led by the White House, funded by the Department of Justice. You don't think that had a hand in it? Uh, what I'm that, not sure that demented young man about. was hearing? I'm not sure well, I know what you're talking we're, about. We're deviating away from we're deviating away from the uh, conversation. We are a little bit. Let's go yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, to, but, let's yeah, go back okay, to, but we're getting into a good meat and potatoes discussion. Okay, but but yeah. I'll yield. But I, have, I, I have a I have a set of questions that I have. Okay, go on. All right. So in your book, you state that the impunity for past U- U.S. war crimes makes future crimes not only permissible but likely. While yeah. our officials are breaking international laws against torture and assassination with impunity, in your opinion, do you think nothing is off the table when it comes to U.S. to the U.S. committing war crimes? Is there anything we won't do? Oh, is there anything I think we won't do? Well, is there I, anything we won't do? Is, is, is there, there anything we won't do? Okay, here's what I hope. I mm-hmm. hope that we won't use nuclear weapons. But I got to okay. tell you. When we have people running for the White House who say they want to see if sand can glow in the dark, that makes me very nervous. And it makes me think that if there had been some kind of accountability for the crimes of past administrations, we wouldn't have people running around who are candidates or trying to be candidates for president saying, I'm going to use nuclear weapons against the so-called Islamic State. I mean, that makes no military sense. you know, yes. Are you talking about Cruz statements, ma'am? Yes, yes. Yeah, well, he said something about turning it to glass, but uh, I don't. No, he always you know, said, and I'm not a Cruz fan. I've got the quotation. Oh, oh, well, well, wow, Ruben. He said, "See if Sam Cruz is Ruben's boy." Ruben, what do you have to say to that? Well, I, I have, I, I have he to also disagree said with that. Bombing. Saturation the carpet bombing. Bomb, well, the carpet bombing. The carpet bombing. He did say that, and he he said it that he would would basically would target the areas where um, the terrorists would be. So do you know what ta- do you know what carpet bombing is? Carpet the bomb- legal definition of Well, basically it's going to be it's going to be targeting a certain area. He's not going to target the whole no, area. No, 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 no. Carpet bombing yeah, it's mass is indiscriminate bombing of of cities. Of a particular that's, geographical area. Right. Right, right. And that's that, how I would take carpet bombing. That's exactly what it well, is. And I, that's I, I, why I, I it think... is considered a war crime, because you cannot discriminate between civilians and combatants when you do carpet bombing. You just can't. Because there is no way to isolate a, a group of people who, for example, are holding a city. So say ISIS, as they are, is holding a city like, say, Mosul in Iraq. You cannot say right. the solution to that problem is going to be carpet bomb Mosul because when you well, do that, you will be indiscriminately murdering civilians, and that is a war well, crime, and you can't do it. I would, I would, I would, I would say that what he tried, he's trying to say is basically trying to make the enemy aware that that's a possibility that he would do it. I don't, but I don't. It's not he would a possibility. If you're going to obey the law, it's not a possibility. And I don't see that we get any benefit for our own people in saying to our own people, we want to become the kind of people who are willing to bomb the the heck out 
of an entire city, we don't care who dies. What does that well, do to currently, us? Currently, currently, the United States under this administration is very – they're looked upon very weak in the rest of the world. They don't feel well, – they, they are. Someone, who, someone needs to step up to the plate. And, again, I don't want to get into the, uh, into the actual p- p- politics of it. I want to basically but, focus on this. So but, my question but, is, there are different kinds of strengths, right? There's mm-hmm. the strength that comes from military power, and that is absolutely one kind of strength. There's also the strength that comes from moral leadership. And what I feel like the United States once had, you know, we call ourselves the leaders of the free world, right? There was a time when the United States was recognized as the moral leader of the world, as the defender of human rights. We don't have that anymore. We don't have any moral strength anymore because people looked at what we did in the world in the aftermath of September 11th and said basically – Whatever you had in terms of moral capital, you spent it on torture and on an unprovoked war that killed hundreds of thousands of people. I think we, to get our strength back, we also need to get back our moral leadership. And that's a hard one because yeah. we have to start showing that we are willing to obey the, the international law just like any other country. I would also – something I, would, I have to say in truth on this one. Strength is a perception. Whether it actually exists or not is another matter. It's the mental perception our adversarial world leaders have of our strength. And right. you're both correct. You're, you're both correct morally. Uh, it's going to take a while to regain that. And I'm telling you, militarily, I am very concerned. You know, uh, I have uh, a, a son in the Air Force. Uh, I Where's know other young men. Excuse me? Where is he? Where's he stationed? Or can't he's, up in, uh, he, he's up where they control the drones. Uh, I don't want to mention the oh, base's okay. name on okay. the air. Got it. But, but uh, I, they just expanded his base. Uh, mm-hmm. When I was I was up there uh, last year, and he said, "Yeah, they're uh, going to be putting in all the drone control people over here. Mm-hmm. So they're mm-hmm. going to be they're controlling the drones up uh, right, up where right. he is. I I don't want to mention uh-huh. the base, but I also Does know uh, because I've had four sons, Rebecca. Uh, mm-hmm. I know a lot of young men. Uh, yep. I've known young men that have been in the Marines, have all, all sorts of tours of duty." Uh, my son's mm-hmm. been in all these war zones, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I have a lot of questions. Uh, you know, I had mm-hmm. one young man ask me, Mr. Falzon, why do they have me protecting poppy fields? Afghanistan? <laughs> it's uh, a damn good, good question. And, he was yeah, asking me I mean, a question. He says, I was given... Yep. I, you know, mm-hmm. he was given coordinates, GPS coordinates, and when I arrived mm-hmm. at the GPS coordinates with mm-hmm. my squad, mm-hmm. it was a poppy field. Mm-hmm. So and you know what? There is a the, lot the going on with this policy. Oh, absolutely. If you want to read a good book about this, and especially about the corruption in Afghanistan, it's called Seeds of State, and it's by a woman named Sarah Chase who actually, she was a reporter, but when she got to Afghanistan, she decided to stay there and see if she could do something to help the people of that country. And she started getting involved in some of these non, non-governmental organizations, and she began to realize that they were hand-in-glove with the brother of the president of Karzai and just how much money was being made out of this so-called development that wasn't helping anybody. And, yeah, the drug stuff is a big part of it. Yeah, oh, I would say, you know, go ahead. Anybody, go well, ahead. I mean, I don't know what I would say to the parent of a son or a daughter who died or came home maimed or with brain damage or with PTSD, all for the sake of protecting poppy fields. I wouldn't know what to say to that parent. And I know, again, uh, and I know, I, I have think, several friends with children that have returned from the war zones with PTSD. Uh, I know how serious it is. 
and and passing out behind the wheel, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. And what a shame uh, it is that we're not taking care of those veterans. That you know. Oh yeah. Well, well, of course, because the veterans predominantly vote Republican, so. Uh, we could just talk It was already overboard. happening under Bush, though. It was already happening under Bush. Uh, yeah, he, was yeah, he, he was no charmer but, either with his rules of engagement. But Ruben anyway, okay, sounds on. very anxious to speak. <laughs> yes, speak, speak. Okay, uh, Rebecca, the, uh, yes. do, you ever th- do you think that the U.N. International Criminal Tribunal will ever charge any of our leaders for their war crimes? Ah. The International uh, Criminal Court, which is not actually part of the U.N., but that's what I think you're talking about, the one at The Hague. Right, the the one in The Hague. No, they can't, and here's why. Because the United States, although we signed the original treaty that created the court, under the Bush administration, we withdrew our signature and said we are never going to ratify it. So the United States is not part of the treaty that created the court, which means that our people cannot be tried there. They can so be tried. They can be tried in other countries. So, for example, recently in the in 2014, George W. Bush was going to go to Switzerland, but then he heard that there was a judge in Switzerland who was going to actually indict him for some of the crimes that have been committed, which you can do under the law in Switzerland, and he decided not to go. So. How about Henry Kissinger? How about Henry oh, Kissinger? Yeah, well, he's another one, you know, going back to the coup in Chile and exactly. all of the crimes of Vietnam and the crimes in, in um, Indonesia. Yeah, I mean, yes. You know, September 11th, what it used to mean for people that I know was the day that Pinochet overthrew the elected government of Chile with the connivance and the agreement of the Nixon White House and the CIA. That was on September 11th. And that's what people used to remember when they remembered September 11th, 1973. I have friends who were living there, you know, when people were rounded up and 50,000 people were murdered in the stadium in Santiago. And right. we gave the green light to that. Just that was, as, that's what, by that's the what, that's when, that's when, yeah, when, but that uh, was at the height of the Cold War. We were... Fighting so Marxism on numerous right? continents. Does that make it uh, right? Um, no, it certainly doesn't. A death of innocence is never right. And that Does bringing in a dictatorship that lasted for all those years, that murdered tens of thousands of people, that tortured thousands of people, I mean, that can't Morally, be right. no. But in the, in the strategic struggle... With the Soviet but he didn't Union, hurt the Soviet Union by 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 allowing a coup in Chile any more than we hurt the Soviet Union by supporting the Contra in Nicaragua. That those right. things weren't. Oh, of course we weren't hurting the hurt. Soviet Union. But in these cases, well, what we were doing was trying to keep this hemisphere free Under our of control. this Marxist right para- parasite. But why do and we that was the, the right objective. Again, morally wrong. Go ahead. Why do, what gives us the right to decide what government another country has? If well, we're just Chile, looking out for our own interests, just like every other country does. And what is Why shouldn't we pursue our own interests? Well, but why shouldn't we pursue our own interests in a very dangerous world, well, Rebecca? Because what, our interests are more than just economic and military. Our interests are, pardon the expression, spiritual, or if you will, moral. The reason that the U.S. is worth preserving is not just because we happen to like living where we do. It's worth preserving because it represents certain values, values of liberty, right? Values of the rule of law. Values of equality. Well, that, values that's of out opportunity. the window these past seven years. The rule of law. There is no rule of law. You know, you're talking to a man who lives in New Jersey, who our governor uh, swindled over a billion dollars because of his uh, negative investments, and now, the man wasn't even indicted in John Corzine. Excuse me. Yeah, but you're not going to blame Chris Christie who last I looked was a Republican, on President Obama. Well, I would think uh, that, that yes, uh, 
that should have been uh, federal charges. That should have been the DOJ. But uh, you aren't going to get that from the D. You aren't going to get a Democrat unless it's someone like Menendez who had the chutzpah to stand up and challenge the, uh, I I don't call it the Iranian treaty or deal. I call it the Iranian capitulation. Uh, That's the only time you see Democrats being uh, uh, pursued by the Department of Justice is when their public statements run counter to uh, the Generalissimo Hussein's junta regime. Okay, that, but that, one more time, you know, and Chris look, Christie is not a Democrat. Can you think of any other Democrats? Okay. I can't. You see, we're, we're, right, deviating again. we're deviating again away from... We're deviating yeah, away from... from great from radio from... and great conversation, man. <laughs> I, I understand. <laughs> I just... I just I, I'm more of a... I'm more structure. I'm more structure when it comes to interviews... <laughs> I, I don't like to deviate. I like to focus on... on okay, on go on, Ruben. Give me your next question. Okay, Fire away, baby. Is, is there a country that does follow international laws during time of, time of war? <laughs> don't all countries ah. commit crimes against humanity during wartime? That is a great question. And the answer mm-hmm. is, of course not. But that doesn't mean they aren't crimes. That's why we had Nuremberg. That's why we had the tribunal. Because, yeah, no country that I know of has ever been able to conduct a war without committing some kinds of crimes. So, But that's sort of like saying, is there any city where there are never robberies? Well, I guess we shouldn't have laws against robbery. The point is that when people commit crimes, they should be held responsible. And I think we get better as time goes on. I like to think human beings get better as time goes on. I mean, there used to be a time when the only creatures who counted as human beings were a certain group of men who happened to have a lot of money. And then we gradually enlarged the circle to include people who have plumbing like me, who are women. And we got to count as human. And my feeling is that over time, the long arc of human history is moving towards more accountability and fewer crimes. That's got to be my hope. And I've seen changes in my own lifetime that tell me we are capable of making better political decisions than we have in the past. But if there's no consequence for breaking the law – then people are just going to go ahead and break it again. And that's why we see people like Donald Trump saying, I'll torture people. I don't care if it's against the law. And then he says, oh, well, I'll just change the law. Well, you can't just change the law because we signed a treaty. Right, but but the thing is, the the part that bothers me a lot is that all these individuals that are supposed to be held, they're supposed to be held to the law are they seem to be above the law. For example, That's exactly, we have, we, yeah. we, have, we have the former Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton. She's being held, I mean, she feels like she's above the law. Everything that she did has no consequences because the Department of Justice feels that if she gets indicted and convicted, that's a, a blemish on, 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 on the president's legacy. That could be the reason. I mean, there are a lot of possible reasons for that. What I would say is I think that we live in a country in which once you get to those rarefied highest levels of government, it is very easy to believe that you are above the law. And we Mm -hmm. saw this, for example, when – now, the CIA was very worried about whether or not what they they were doing was legal. And so they went to the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department under George W. Bush, and a couple of guys named Jay Bybee and John Yu wrote some memos in which they did some very weird interpretations of the very clear law about torture and said, oh, well, it only counts as torture if the pain is as great as organ failure or death. In other words, he didn't die, you didn't torture him. These people believed that they could take the law and interpret it however they wanted to. So one thing I think is that we need to, whether they are a Democratic administration or a Republican administration, we need to remind people at the highest level of government that this is a government of laws. And I think what we need in the U.S. 
you know, honestly, I think that President Obama made a big mistake on the first day of his term, of his first term, when he said about the torture, we need to look forwards, not backwards. Basically, he was saying, no matter what you did, no matter who you are, from the Bush administration, you get a free pass. And that just laid the groundwork for people to do more of the same, to promise more of the same. And this is what worries me. And I think, you know, what he should have done is appointed a special prosecutor. Right. Now it's going to Guantanamo. Well, of course, he, he wouldn't do that because they're all in cahoots together. Just like the Republicans haven't been thwarting almost any aspect of the Obama agenda uh, because secretly, you know, they're just cooperating with him. Obama's going to do the same thing. Oh, he's not going to go after Bush because one day they might come after me. He, so, well, you know, they're is, all back, and, slap, slap, and share their martinis and move on. You know, what's interesting is at the Nuremberg um, at the Nuremberg tribunals, the U.S. representative who was the prosecutor from the United States, each country supplied a prosecutor, was this guy named Robert Jackson. He was a justice on the Supreme Court, but he worked as a prosecutor at Nuremberg. And what he said later is, we need to remember that history is going to judge our future actions by what we do here. In other words, we're setting the standard and we better, you know, we better abide by the standard that we're setting here at Nuremberg because we're going to be judged by those same standards in the future. And this is what I think hasn't happened. Yeah, Rebecca, uh, I'd like for you to mention your, the name of your book, if you have a website, yeah. and where we can yes. purchase the book, where, where our audience can purchase the book. Yeah, because okay. we only have so, three minutes left, folks. All right. So the book is called American Nuremberg, The High Officials Who Should Be Held Responsible for, uh, for Crimes of the War on Terror. You can buy it at any of those big online booksellers that you have heard of, and I don't even need to say the name. You know what they are. You can also buy them at your local independent bookstore, and if they don't have it, ask them to order it. Ask your local library to order it. My website is called MainstreamingTorture.org, and you can contact me there. You can read my blog. You can see the other things that I've written, including my first book, which is called Mainstreaming Torture. And, but the new book is called American Nuremberg. Buy it. Read it. Even if you disagree about it with it, you'll probably learn some things that are interesting. <laughs> Rebecca, I wanted to say it's been a pleasure Having you on the air, I love your voice. You have a strong, sincere, passionate, well, you know, from your heart voice, and I respect you for that. Well, thank I you, agree. and I appreciated I, the sparring. <laughs> it's, uh, we're, we're, we're like Bud and Jeff here, you know? Yeah, I know, I <laughs> well, know. You I, know, I was hoping, 90 seconds, I was hoping we would have time to discuss the completion of the white genocide in Zimbabwe and the ongoing white genocide in South Africa. But I guess we wouldn't have enough time to cover that. Maybe you can come back, Rebecca, and we could do a show on that. Maybe. It's not my area of expertise at all. I lived in South Africa. Oh, okay, but I was looking at your bio. You have you yeah. have some experience down there. I was there in 1990, yeah. So it was a long time Okay, our guest was Rebecca Gordon. Uh, her Thank book you, is on our, web, on our website. We are students for a better future. We are 501c3. Uh, we look for donations for every dollar you give us. We spend $1.65. So 100% of your donations go to the cause. Uh, this is Mark Bowser and Ruben Torres with our guest, Rebecca Gordon. And we're going to, everyone, say good night. Good night, students and folks. Good night. Good night, Rebecca. Good night, folks. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. <laughs>
towards Marxist. I went to high school in Greenwich Village from mm-hmm. 68 to 72 during the height. Ah, <laughs> uh, that was quite the, the time. It, it was war. quite the time. And several times I witnessed, one time uh, it was directed at me, that the Marxist students, they were either SDS or Weathermen, were throwing mm-hmm. sulfuric acid oh. into the oh. crowds. That's and inexcusable. It, it, that it was horrible. So ever since, and then I also horrible. saw collusion between, uh, I went to Stuyvesant High School. It's a specialized mm-hmm. high right, school right. in New York City. Yeah. Many yeah of I was these, born in New York. Many of these uh, SDS weathermen, uh, back then it was the Afro-American Society, uh, the Puerto Rican folks had Aspira, it was called. Uh, I mm-hmm. watched some of these rabid Marxist street commanders. You know, they were the ones directing the other guys on the street, mm-hmm. working closely with the Channel 2, Channel 4, Channel 7 news crews. So I saw this with my own eyes. So I am aware of this ultimate collusion that is taking place. And as many people are not. And that's what gets my uh, Maltese going. Because I'm half Maltese. And especially Mm -hmm. when we talk about World War II, uh, I had too many members of my family killed Mm -hmm. in Malta Mm -hmm. during World War II. You know, they bombed that little island day and night. Oh, yeah. Day and night Malta was bombed. You know, there there was a time the Mediterranean was all Axis except for Malta. And they bombed it and bombed it and bombed it. No one could get off the island starving. Uh, My father was so traumatized, he never told me one word Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. what Mm -hmm. they went through. I Mm -hmm. actually found out about it at his funeral from my uncle, who was much younger than him, about what the and hell went is, on over there. That is the horror of war. Oh, yeah. That yeah. kills me when yeah. I see innocents being killed. Like, I get very upset with these jihadist mm-hmm. Muslims. But I would never consider doing something to a building that has women and children in there. That's... Uh, we just can't go there. So I understand about the carpet bombing. I I sympathize with, with all of that. But at at the moment, I don't see any of our leaders having any of the correct answers to deal with what's going on in the world today. What I think, and yeah, I think that's what scares that the me. Arab people themselves are going to take care of ISIS. I think that the, you know that they. I, the, I you see. I've also had close Palestinian friends who mm-hmm. were from from Palestine, from over there, mm-hmm. who survived the 67 war. And right. the, the, the problem over there, and I don't know if the solution lies in the United States or in Europe, but the problem is their leaders are, are, They've are, been very are overtly corrupt the the, yeah. the the people are purposely uh, miseducated. They're indoctrinated. Uh, it's a, a sin. Like, for instance, one of my Palestinian friends, uh, this maybe it was like 2004 when they were finally having elections, the Palestinians, my friend tells me, Hamas is going to win going away. It won't even be close. So I asked mm-hmm. Mohammed, how come? And he tells me, he says, well, the West just paints Hamas as a terrorist organization. And, yes, you know, they do do these atrocities. He says, but what they don't tell you is Hamas keeps up all the... Well, well, the PLO is different than than, uh, Hamas. Right, exactly. No, what they don't tell you is how corrupt the PLO is. And why people oh, yeah, they're all them. corrupt, but still, they will, they make sure there's running water, the electricity's going, the schools exactly. are open, the markets That's stay open. That's what a government so is. Th- right, right. So they're doing that in addition to this terrorism. And th- there was just a terrorist attack the other day on, oh, in I Israel on, 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 on the bus. On a bus, yeah. And yep. I, it's just, 
I I almost cry every time I I see they all these poor people, and I don't know. And I'll tell you, Rebecca, I don't know how I'd react if someone that I love was impacted by something like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have to take action. You know, I'm an old Brooklyn Queens boy, and no, I'm not going to sit around and wait for the chips to fall or wait for law enforcement to get their act together. No, I'm going to go out there, and I mean, your brains are going to be on the sidewalk. Uh, and I, wonder, uh, I, I don't well, care where I have better. to go to do that. You know, you hurt one of my loved ones. Mm-hmm. There's going to be problems. Uh, I, so I, it's it's just frustrating. Also, I'll tell yeah. you this. One of the Marines killed in the barracks under Reagan. Mm-hmm. Uh, we in lived Lebanon. on the block with, right, we lived on the block with his sister. And I cried oh, with wow. her that day. Oh, she course. came running into our apartment. My brother's oh, my dead. They killed my brother. Yeah. No, that's so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I understand both sides of the issue. What happened to Chile? When I hear innocents were slaughtered, think son of a gun. Why can't you overthrow the communist government without doing that crap? Because then you become just like them. Uh, well, exactly. And we don't want to be like them. Right. That's exactly right. Listen, I got to go, but this was... Yeah, really, I'll let you go because Ruben's going to get jealous that we had this <laughs> conversation after the show. <laughs> well, I don't want that to happen. All yeah, right. me either. Yeah. All right, listen, it's been a, it's been a great time. It was Thank a real you. pleasure. Good night. All right. Bye-bye.